In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. We hope and pray that you open our minds and our hearts. May the Holy Spirit sort of inspire us to understand some of the difficulties with uh, St. Paul's wording and his message. Help us to boil it down to something that is understandable for us and be able to apply it today. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Uh, any questions before we begin? Okay. I'm sure that you've all uh, were just anxious to get in here and start reading this lovely letter from St. Paul to the Romans. Okay? Yes? Paul must have visited the Romans sometime before he wrote the letter. No. So he was never up there. That's right. But they recognized who he was or he was trying to tell them who he was? Or? Uh, both. A little both. He had, you know, his, as they say today, his reputation preceded him. Yeah. Dick's question was uh, that Paul must have been at least acquainted or have visited the Romans before he wrote this letter. And the answer is no. Uh, he never met them. He never did these uh, or established these churches like he did the Galatians. The whole purpose of the letter uh, is different from Galatians although it was written perhaps about the same time because there uh, are overlapping subjects. Okay. So Paul did not actually uh, visit Rome until towards the end of his life when he was there as a prisoner, so he never got to do what he wanted to do. His intention in writing, well, there were two intentions, you might say. But let me digress for just a moment. How many of you went through the exercise that the author of this commentary recommended by keeping track of all of the pronouns? <laughs> not one of you? you? Not one of you did your homework? Well, I have to admit, I didn't do it either. <laughs> because I don't think it was necessary. All right? It might have been an interesting exercise. But then you would be so intent on looking for personal pronouns that you would totally miss the message. And that's what we're trying to get to. Let's look at it this way. This is not a typical letter, particularly as letters are written today. You know, you say, well, dear Aunt Susie, uh, yesterday I did this and today I did something different and tomorrow I'm going to do something else and so forth and hope you're well and goodbye. You know? Well, letters in those days were not written like that uh, for a variety of reasons. For one thing, not everybody could read. Not everybody was as, a, as literate or well-educated as Paul. So letters, of course, you know, you didn't put a, a 44-cent stamp on an envelope and expect it to get there the day after tomorrow. Uh it took weeks and sometimes months to get to its destination if you were lucky. 
In other words, if you could trust not only one person, but a variety of people, that that letter would be handed off uh, to until it got to its destination. So, letters in those days were not written with just frivolous information as we would write today. Not that what we write today we think is frivolous, but it would have been considered frivolous in those days. You know, get to the heart of the subject, man, and go on. Paul is on fire. And you can tell this because of the overlapping subjects from Galatians. He's on fire with the ideas that he is developing. Remember, he is really the first theologian of the early church. And so he's on fire with this idea of having to get out the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. Forget about, well, yeah, in a way, forget about everything else that Christ taught. That's important. But that wasn't Paul's message. That wasn't part of his message. He never, in the whole book, mentions uh, the resurrection of Christ. It's the the death um, that is really important. Well, I shouldn't say he never mentions the resurrection, but it's always mentioned in conjunction with the death of Christ because it was the whole apex of God's plan of salvation. The main point of God's plan of salvation was permitting or sending his son to earth, becoming a man just like the rest of us to represent all mankind in the great sacrifice that God through Christ gave us. All right? In reparation for the sins of all mankind. So he didn't represent just one person. He represented all mankind before him, during his lifetime, and afterwards. All the way up until the end of time itself. And that's the message that Paul is on fire with trying to get out. So he takes this opportunity for a couple reasons. Now, getting back to Dick's question here, he really wrote the letter to introduce himself personally to the Romans with the understanding that he was going to uh, visit Rome in the near future. Now, the near future for somebody like that would be perhaps in the next couple of years. <coughs> you know, not day after tomorrow or next month or whatever within the next couple of years, because a journey of that kind would take quite a while. Uh, Unfortunately for Paul, he did finally get to Rome, but it was several years later, uh, as a prisoner, uh, waiting his turn to see the emperor, because he was accused by a number of... uh, temple rulers in Jerusalem of violating all kinds of (coughs) Jewish laws and in turn violating Roman laws, which of course were uh, erroneous charges. But he spent a couple of years in Caesarea uh, waiting for the emperor to make up his mind 
in the meantime, the emperor changed. Uh, when he finally did get to Rome, it was Nero, uh, rather than, I forgot, whoever preceded Nero, Pan. Uh, and, of course, all things changed. Now, when he did get to Rome, he was sort of in a house arrest, you might say, for a couple of years, and that's where he wrote his pastoral letters. That is, First Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. Okay. Uh, he may have written others. He also was able to teach. He was not able to leave his house, because I said he was under house arrest. But nevertheless, he did conduct some work. But he never was able to get to Spain, uh, which was his original intention. The other sort of subtle sub-intention of introducing himself to the Romans by via, via this letter was he was hoping to develop a relationship with the uh, Roman Christians, most of whom were converts from paganism or some other form of religion. There were a few Jewish converts, but nevertheless, most of them were not. Uh, but his other subtle uh, reason was he wanted them to eventually finance his trip to Spain. Okay. Uh, although he doesn't mention it per se, uh, but nevertheless, uh, that is the reason. Now, you might remember or have heard in some of his other letters that there was another uh, collection, you might say, and the word collection is used quite frequently in some of his letters, as well as in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. And Paul was the one that eventually delivered a collection of money gifts from various churches that he did found to the people in Jerusalem. Uh, anyone know, want to know the reason why? Hmm? Well, don't be so blunt about it. Uh, because of the persecution going on in Jerusalem, the Jews who became Christians were ostracized uh, or ignored as even being alive, you might say, and those who owned uh, businesses were shunned, and therefore their businesses uh, died just about. So it created an artificial uh, famine, you almost might say, uh, as a means of persecution. And so what Paul did was take up a collection from the churches that he did establish in other parts of the Mideast, outside of uh, Israel, and did take it to Jerusalem to support some of those people that were able to purchase. In many cases, even if you had money, people would not deal with you. Uh, you see, the persecution uh, is often thought about, the persecution of the early Christians is often thought about in terms of the Romans. But it was the Jewish people themselves that began the persecutions because they felt that those people who accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and uh, followed the new way, as it was originally called, 
uh, were enemies of Judaism. And as enemies, they were treated as such and shunned. Even uh, families or people within families. And Jesus himself in Luke's gospel and uh, to some degree Matthew's gospel uh, talks about setting uh, the earth on fire. Now, it doesn't mean real fire. He means it fire in enthusiasm for the Christian word. But it will set mother against father and father against mother and, you know, son against so forth. And you, you all remember that. You've heard it many times. And that is the reason behind it. That's what's going on. So, if you have that in mind, that's not the reason that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans with the intentions of having the Romans um, finance uh, his trip to Spain, which, of course, he never took. All right. So, again, getting back to his enthusiasm, which is sort of spilling over from the letter to the Galatians, which was written perhaps in the same time, and he's still thinking about this. So his letter to the Romans is filled with that kind of enthusiasm. And uh, as I was reading through this again, I was thinking, boy, if I was one of the Romans receiving this letter, I would really wonder about this guy because some of the subjects that he gets into uh, is kind of embarrassing in a way. And his intention, though, is, as I put it up here, humanity without the true gospel message is leading you to damnation. That's what his point is in the first part of the chapter, or actually the second part after the introduction. All right. And then later, God's power to for salvation. We'll get into some of the details and you'll see what I want. But I want to make another point. The author, Father Karras, in writing this, uses the word gospel, Paul's gospel, several times. Paul did not write a gospel in the same way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote a gospel. All right? He's using the term in a very generic way, meaning good news. That's how the word translates or retranslates back into uh, or from from the Greek to the, from the Hebrew to the Greek to the Latin to the German to English. All right, but it's good news, meaning the good news of salvation. All right. If you recall, the word gospel comes from the word German, gut spiel. All right. And I think you can sort of translate that yourself. Gut spiel. Good news. Uh, my mother was uh, German and she used to give us a lot of, she didn't remember it because she was uh, just an infant or very young child. But she used to give us some of these words that she could remember. And spiel, you know, would be not only uh, news, but story uh, or brief talk, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Sistikin spiel. 
sits to sit down and let's talk. Okay. All right. But that's where the word gospel comes from. Gut spiel. All right. But keep in mind as you read through this book that uh, Keres, the author of the commentary, is using that term in a very generic way. All right. Very general use because Obviously, Paul's message is good news, but it's not a gospel in the same uh, sense or tradition as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's. Okay. So, any questions before we get into some of the details? All right. So, all right, let's... <coughs> I don't want to read just every word here because I'm sure that you've all read it several times probably and just I'm sure you just know it by heart, okay? All right. Down in the middle of page 43, there's a comment made here that is interesting. I had not thought about it previously, but it's a, it works. Uh, in the commentary, at the end of the first paragraph, it says, Yet God has called the Jew, Paul, to preach the gospel to these sinners, or people who he thinks are sinners. And of course, anyone outside of uh, Judaism, or a good faithful Jew, was considered to be a sinner. All right? At least that's the way they looked at it. But he's sort of referring back to uh, the prophet Jonah. You know, Jonah and the whale and going, God's command that he go to Nineveh and preach, all right, preach the hell and damnation if they didn't turn from their ways. Well, in the same way, Paul is now being asked to do pretty much the same thing. And so there is uh, an interesting uh, comparison between the two. <clears throat> Further down in the next paragraph, it says, Paul is looking more to the broad sweep of God's purpose of giving life to men and women. And Paul refers again to God's salvific pur- purpose when he considers Abraham in uh, verse in chapter 4, which we'll get to next week, all right? So, the whole idea of life, in this case, is meant to be spiritual life, not physical, all right? Spiritual life, okay? The whole uh, first uh, seven verses are really a traditional introduction of a letter of this kind at this time period. Paul, a slave of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised previously through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that's true. God, the Father, promised salvation through the prophets. Not that salvation itself would come through the prophets. It was the message that came through the prophets. 
the gospel about his son, a descendant from David, according to the flesh, but established as son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness through resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And through him, we have received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, among whom you, you Romans, are also, and who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all the beloved of God in Rome, and all are called to be holy. It's interesting that even though this was written, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, over a long period of time, the church, the Catholic church, never thought that the average human being could be holy. Isn't that something? It's not that they wouldn't permit it. It's not that they said in writing that it couldn't happen. It's just was customary to consider man, the average man and woman in the seats and even up here could never be holy. It wasn't really until Vatican II back in 1962 through 1965 that the whole idea of we are all called to holiness and that we are all capable of holiness came to be actually written down and made a firm belief of the church. Prior to that, it was only priests and nuns and monks and deacons that could really reach holiness. And, of course, a few rich people. Not that they played bingo in those days. Yeah, and uh, right after that, too, that the priesthood of the laity. The priesthood of the laity, yes, yes. And yet we are all called to be priests in a sense. Yeah. All right. Now, each of these letters in this time, you know, the formal letters in these times, always had a very flowery, wordy uh, opening, including a thanksgiving for the ability of the writer to reach the addressee. First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is heralded throughout the world. Now, out the world, in this case, means Roman Empire. All right. The world beyond that might not have existed, really. Uh, any thought beyond that was not in their mind. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in proclaiming the gospel of his Son, that I remember you constantly, always asking in my prayers that somehow, by God's will, I may at last find my way to clear to come to you. That's your answer there. See? For I long to see you that I may share with you some spiritual gift so that you may be strengthened. And that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, yours and mine, 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, though I was prevented until now that I might harvest some fruit among you too, as among the rest of the Gentiles, to the Greeks and non-Greeks alike, to the wise and the ignorant, I am under obligation, and that is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. When he, sees, when he says to the Greeks and non-Greeks, he's not talking about people in Greece. He's talking about to the elite in Rome. Remember, Greek, Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, was the culture of all of the Roman Empire. For a number of years, even after Christ, from the 3rd century or 4th century, B.C., when it was established by Alexander the Great, it was established throughout the Greek Empire, and when Rome conquered the Greek Empire, they continued the Hellenistic influence, that is, Greek culture, Greek uh, philosophy, education, theology, etc. Yes, yes, but not in Israel. In Israel, remember, the exclusivity you can use that word exclusivity, that sounds nice five dollar word of the Jewish people would not accept the Hellenistic culture and if you go back that was the whole uh, meaning behind uh, one and two Maccabees because it created the Maccabean war Uh, it was the Hepatus behind the book of uh, Daniel, and so forth and so on. Okay. All right. Now, there are just two main subjects within these three chapters that we are going to be talking about tonight. Humanity is lost without the gospel. That is the true gospel message, the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you have to kind of keep that in mind and let a lot of the wordiness um, sift away. Uh, So many people get lost in the words that Paul uses. You know, a lot of rhetoric. And uh, rhetoric is, uh, I always call rhetoric uh, a bunch of empty words. You know, you could say something using fancy rhetoric. Uh, but you could also say it in lot less language where it would be more meaningful. But it was part of the culture. And because he was a very well-educated man, he had to use uh, the rhetorical method and system in the style of his writing. Remember, when he and the other writers of the New Testament, as well as most of the Old Testament, when they would write these books down, they were not thinking about people reading them 2,000 years later. They were not originally intended to be Holy Scripture. A few of the Old Testament books were, you know, such as the wisdom books, uh, Psalms, etc., Proverbs, etc., Uh, But most of them were written as history or instruction, as these are. So they were not written as scripture. They didn't become scripture 
until after they were used over the centuries and people saw how by living by them they could become holier. God's power for salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes for Jew first and then Greek. Again, what does he mean by Greek? Anybody that was educated really in the Hellenistic uh, environment or culture. And this, of course, is primarily the Romans. For it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous by faith will live. Now, we had talked about justification, and we're going to talk more about it later in this letter. Let me give you an idea of the difference between, and there isn't much difference between, um, justification and righteousness. All right? Righteousness is not a word that is commonly used in uh, Catholic settings. For those of you who went to Catholic schools as uh, youngsters, you never heard the nuns or the priests or the brothers ever use the word righteousness or righteous in a way. That was Protestant. Okay? But, since Vatican II, and for anyone who studied uh, Galatians and Romans, the word justification is quite common, all right? And remember, we had talked about a week or two ago, justification was being put on the right road to Christ. Okay? I've got to just say God here because that's ultimately what it is. Now, Righteousness is closely related, but in a sense, and this is the easiest way to remember it, it's a little further down the road. Alright? Not much, but a little further down the road. The same road a little closer to God. Okay? So, they're very closely related, and you could almost use them synonymously. But one means a little closer to the goal. Okay? The other is for somebody who has been going in the wrong direction, and I'm using that in a very broad sense, uh, and is now being put on because he or she wants to be put on the right road towards God, that leads to God. Alright. Now, neither of these is the same as sanctification. 
You are there. Okay? You have arrived. Yes, you have arrived at your destination. GPS system. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Does that help you? I hope so. All right. I hope so. Uh, yes, sanctification. Yes, sanctification. Yeah. Um, point zero zero one, maybe. Okay. All right. Very few people are in this category before they die. All right. But you know, we celebrated three great saints. Uh, very recently, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Lisieux, and uh, St. Francis of Assisi. All three of those, you might say, had reached this category before they died. Now, a person, though, it is, who is still living cannot be uh, declared a saint. Uh, we might say, oh, that person's a saint. Uh, I often say that about a particular uh, relation of mine uh, because of what that person has to put up with. But uh, that's a different, yeah, that's a different uh, subject matter altogether. Okay, all right, uh, and we won't get into the whole idea of saints. But let me give you this: it's a shocker to some people. Everybody in heaven is a saint. Okay? Everybody in heaven is a saint by definition. Not necessarily on the canonization or the list of saints recognized by the church because that takes a long process and uh, most of us are not worthy of that. Alright? What difference does it make once you're up there? All right, just threw that out for a little interest. Yeah. Now, here is one of those uh, subjects that if I were a Roman receiving this letter, I would begin to wonder about this guy. But nevertheless, I think that Paul, when he writes a lot of this, forgets about who the sender is and forgets about what the thinking might be at the other end, he is so on fire to get the message out that he writes it anyways. Okay? So think about it in that way. Don't worry about the personal pronouns thing. You know, that's that's an exercise in futility, I think. The wrath of God is indeed being revealed from heaven against every impiety and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay? Suppress the truth within themselves by their wickedness or with preventing it from reaching others. And you see, in this culture, because so many of the people were illiterate, not dumb or ignorant, but illiterate, they had to depend on people telling them what was the right way to live and so forth. And if the people doing the telling were not living 
according to the teachings of God, then those that they instructed were getting the wrong message, and that's what he's talking about here. For what can be known about God is evident to them because God made it evident to them, and that's about the moral law that is built within all of us. Okay. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. Now, what that means is, as I hope you already figured out, that mankind is endowed with the ability to at least reason that there is a higher power that created the sun. You may see the moon out there tonight. It is absolutely magnificent. Can you imagine that just happening by, you know, the Big Bang Theory with nothing behind it? No. No. No, no. Mankind is endowed with the ability to reason that it took a higher power to make that moon and a lot of other things. You know, the, the sunset tonight was absolutely magnificent. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, and that's what we're talking about, of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse, for although they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning, and their senseless minds were darkened. Well, we have a number of people today that's doing the same darn thing. You know, anyone that uh, insists, like, um, unfortunately, the, the, the great scientist Stephen Hawkins is as brilliant as a person as he is. He is an adamant atheist. Uh, and how the two can exist in the same person, I don't know. But unfortunately, that's what he teaches. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of mortal man or birds or of four-legged animals or of snakes. In other words, these people, instead of worshiping the one true invisible God, they worship idols. Okay. Idols of different kinds. But don't we do that today? Uh-huh. Football, the golf course, the mall, you know, the beach, whatever. <coughs> you know, people that join movements Right now, they're having this Wall Street sit-in movement, you know. People are spending days, camps, and so forth and so on. Um, I wonder how many of those have ever been to a retreat. Something to think about. Therefore, God handed them over to impurity through lusts of their hearts for the mutual degradation of their bodies. They exchanged the truth for God. And I'm not going to read all of this because it's a little uh, <clears throat> strong. 
But you get the message, all right? He's putting down anyone that does not recognize the essence of God in all goodness, in all created things. He goes on at uh, verse 31. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know the just decree of God, they all who practice such things deserve death. They do not, um, they not only do uh, them, but give approval to those who practice them. So these are the leaders of the Jewish people, primarily, who are teaching others these kinds of practices. And you see, a lot of that came from the Hellenistic culture because it was a very promiscuous culture. It enjoyed, you know, the word Epicurean. Uh, we associate Epicurean with people who sort of overindulge in eating. But it came from the Greek uh, uh, philosopher, Epicurus, you know, who associated uh, food with all kinds of pleasure and vice versa. And that's how we got through the word today. But, verse, uh, chapter 2. Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For by the standard by which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Since the judge, since you, the judge, do the very same things. Alright, so he's turning the tables. But, I'd have a hard time again if I were the recipient of this letter. But nevertheless, okay. But I want to go on to the next section, judgment by the interior law, because that's really what we want to get to. All who sin outside the law will also perish without reference to it. And all who sin under the law will be judged in accordance with it. For it is not those who hear the law who are just in the sight of God. Rather, those who observe the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now that sounds like double talk. Yeah? Okay. What he's really saying here is people that have never known the Mosaic law cannot either offend God by not observing it because they don't know it. All right? That's the main idea that he's trying to get through here. Okay. Um, and in any case, if they know the Mosaic law, and ignore it, they're going to be punished because they were supposed to be guided by its rules. Even though, in Paul's way of thinking, they are that's no longer necessary because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has now voided the Mosaic law. All right? Not the laws of God that originally that the Mosaic Law came from, that is, the Ten Commandments. Okay. 
For it is not those who hear the law who are just in the sight of God. Rather, those who observe the law will be justified. Right? Will be put on the right road. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the demands of the law are written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even defend them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge people's hidden works through Christ Jesus. Again, a lot of double talk in a way. All right. The whole point that he's making here is, if you do not, if you are not under the law by being a Jew, then you cannot really offend by not observing the Mosaic law. But everybody has certain laws, part of which were in the Mosaic law, that are built within us as human beings. We all know right from wrong. Alright? And within each culture, that varies or has different uh, meanings. And if you love within your culture, and that comes from the, God, the first letter of John, if you love your neighbor and your idea of God, even though you don't have a clear understanding of who God is within that culture, then God resides in you. Because love is of God. God is love. And God therefore resides in you. And even though you may die in that particular uh, situation, uh, that is, in a loving life, leading a loving life, even in a primitive culture, or a culture that doesn't know God or doesn't know Jesus Christ, God still resides in you. God's not going to condemn you simply because you're not a Catholic or a Christian. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, however, and rely on the law and boast of God and know his will and are able to discern what is important since you are instructed from the law, And if you are confident that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those in darkness, that you are a trainer of the foolish and teacher of the simple, because in the law you have the formulation of knowledge and truth, then you who teach another, are you failing to teach yourself? You see, as I said earlier, Because the majority of the people were illiterate, they had to look to the Jewish leaders, primarily uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, the scribes. Uh, Sanhedrin is made up of the various six various political parties within the uh, temple rulers. Uh, The scribes were like the lawyers or they would be sort of the equivalent of theologians today who guided or 
help the Sanhedrin. Okay? If you as a member of the Sanhedrin were teaching things that were contrary to the law and people abided by what you taught them, then you are responsible for not only yourself, but for their wrongdoing. Because they didn't know any better. I know it's a little difficult to uh, quite digest all of that, but nevertheless, <clears throat> um, you who will preach against stealing, do you steal? You who forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? See, he's really kind of putting it back to them. You who detest idols, do you detest idols? Do you rob temples? You who boast of the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, because of you, the name of God is reviled among the Gentiles. And what that often refers to is that the Gentiles realized in many ways uh, that the Jewish people had something going for them. They had structure, they had a faith that if uh, operated properly, correctly, uh, could make them really happy because they were in God's graces. And so the Jewish people look, I mean the Gentiles, often look to the Jewish people as being holy people. But then they realized that not all of them were holy. You know, this one and that one and so forth and so on did things that they knew were wrong. The Gentiles knew that the Jewish people were doing things that were wrong. And so that gave bad example. And that made both of them sort of sin. Yes? This, this paragraph seems out of place. Because it says, now if you are a Jew, he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, but some of them were Jews. But you're right. Uh, and you see, what I have said right up front, I don't think he was really writing specifically to Romans. He was writing an instruction manual. He was writing a theme and an idea and a concept that overflowed practically from Galatians. He's getting into far more detail. In other words, it's, it's sort of a uh, theological treatise. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> now the subject of circumcision comes up again. Circumcision, to be sure, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, he's not talking about the medical procedure. He's talking about what is behind it, the purpose. Remember, as I've said uh, many times before, circumcision was a ritual uh, by the Jewish people that indicated a commitment to God through Moses. All right? they, it was replaced by Jesus Christ and the church with baptism, which now becomes of a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. 
Alright? The whole idea is generally the same. That if you are circumcised and understand and you live by it, then you live in order to observe the Mosaic law. All 613 laws. If you are baptized as a Christian, knowingly and wantingly, and you're supposed to live by it, then you live in accordance with the catechism. Essentially. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Now, that sounds formidable because the catechism is, you know, like the New York telephone book. Um, But it really isn't. It's not so much rules and regulations. The catechism is a statement of faith. And if you live by that, as you're supposed to, then that what's, that's what puts you on the road to sanctification. Okay? As I had up here before. It is so important that I would really recommend that every one of you have a up-to-date catechism uh, not the Baltimore Catechism, please, uh, but an up-to-date catechism in your homes and you read it. All right. It is so important. And it gives you a lot of information. It's not difficult reading. It's divided in the same way. <clears throat> well, it's divided into, I believe it's three or maybe four parts, uh, primarily in accordance with the Apostle, uh, with the Nicene Creed that we uh, say every Sunday in in Mass. Okay? And then there are two or three other uh, segments to it. And it is very easy. Oh, (laughs) Frank just happens to have one. Okay? Thank you. Now, um, like I said, it looks like the New York phone book just about, uh, because there is a lot of detailed information. Okay? Uh, but it is not difficult reading. And it's not like it requires a theological uh, degree or anything to understand it. Um, this is a very nice copy. Fifteen bucks. Probably get it cheaper on Amazon.com. Okay. Always looking for a bargain, you know. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So you're putting it all on even playing. You can get a young kid, a duplicate young kid. Well, yeah, a sin is a sin. Yeah. Right. Okay. But he does get, we're all on the same plane is a good phrase because he does get to that a little later. There is no Jew or Greek or man or woman, etc., etc., everybody is, in the eyes of God, is equal. Yeah. But, again, circumcision is brought up here because he's saying that if you are a circumcised Jew and you live by the law of Moses, then that is credited you to you to you as righteousness, all right? But if you then realize that the death and resurrection has now superseded the Mosaic law and you come over to Christianity and are baptized, 
then you must live according to the teachings of Christ, which is a heck of a lot easier than the Mosaic law. Believe me. Okay. Um, if the Mosaic law was put into a book similar to that catechism, it would be a lot thicker. All right, because it goes into a lot of detail. Had any of you looked at a Jewish Talmud or Mishnah? Okay. Uh, Talmud is the instruction and the Mishnah is a commentary. They weren't written until about the 4th century A.D. Anyways, but that is what the Jewish people use today. But it's all based on the book of Deuteronomy. Again, if an uncircumcised man keeps the precepts of the law, he will not be considered as circumcised. Indeed, those who are physically uncircumcised but carry out the law will pass judgment on you with your written law and circumcision who break it. In other words, he's saying that even though a person may not have been circumcised but lives according to the law of Moses at the time or now the law of Christ is far better more righteous, you might say, than those who live under uh, the law of circumcision or the Mosaic law, but do not follow it. One is not a Jew outwardly. True circumcision is not outward, but in the flesh, but in the mind and heart as well, of course, I'm adding. Rather, one is a Jew inwardly, Spiritually, he's talking about. And circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from human beings, but from God. Does that make sense? All right, now, there's going to be some objections to some of this, okay? What advantage is there, then, in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in respect. For in the first place, there were entrusted with the utterance of God. They were entrusted, I should say, with the utterance of God. In other words, it was God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments, out of which Moses developed most of the other uh, laws, not all 613. Moses did not develop all of those. They were developed over a period of time, long after Moses, and did not become uh, sacred uh, scripture or part of the Mosaic law until around the fifth or sixth, well, fifth century BC. Okay. Not until after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, I lost my place here. Of course not. Uh, what? No, let's go back up uh, to three, verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Will their infidelity nullify the fidelity of God? Of course not. God must be true to Himself and to everyone else. 
through every human being, though every human being is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and conquer when you are judged. But if our wickedness provides proof of God's righteousness, what can we say? It's God unjust, humanly speaking, to inflict his wrath? Of course not. Got awfully quiet next to For how else is God to judge the world? But if God's truth redounds to his glory through my falsehood or yours, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as we are accused and as some claim we say, that we should do evil, that good may come of it. Their plenty is what they deserve. That's a penalty, I'm sorry. Yes. Their penalty is what they deserve. Yeah. Um, There is a saying in the book of Job, uh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the Lord. And then the next line is, um, if we take good from evil, uh, if we take good from God, should we not also take evil? And I cringe when I read that, uh, because it is, I think, a poor translation. God cannot do evil. God cannot do evil of any kind. Because it would be contrary to the laws of divinity for him to do so. And it's not that he has to watch himself so he doesn't. It is, he is incapable of doing evil. Now, he may permit mankind to do it for a purpose and use that purpose for some good cause. But he himself cannot do evil. But it is throughout the Old Testament, not often, but you will find that every, every so often. Uh, about God doing evil or we having to take evil from God. Uh, it doesn't mean evil in the sense that we think of it. It only means, uh, well, you know, the, like the book that's out not some years ago, Why Do Good Things, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? You know, that kind of, of thing. Okay. Universal bondage to sin. Well then, Are we better off? Not entirely. For we have already brought the charge against Jews and Greeks alike that they are under the domination of sin. As it is written, there is no one just, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have gone astray. All alike are worthless. There is not one who does good. And there is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They deserve their tongue. I'm sorry, deceive with their tongues. The venom of asps 
is on their lips. Their mouths are full of bitter cursing. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their ways. And the ways of peace they know not. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, what he's talking about really are the people who follow the Hellenistic ways. Because, as I said earlier, uh, Hellenism was a very permissive culture. You know, if it feels good, do it. If you enjoy it, do it. Um, because there is no one up there watching you. Well, of course, that's not the case. We all know right from wrong, and whether there's anyone watching or not, when we sin, and we can, we are capable of sinning even with no one around or no one being the uh, target of the sin, except ourselves. Uh, nevertheless, we are still sinning. And that is what he is talking about here. Now we know that what the law says is addressed to those under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world stand stand accountable to God. Since no human being will be justified in his sight by observing the law, for through the law comes consciousness of sin. As I said earlier, laws cannot get you to heaven. Laws can only tell you what you've done wrong. You never get a pat on the back for being um, a good driver and observing all the rules of the road. At least I've never heard of anybody doing, getting uh, accommodations or a, a positive citation of any kind. Has that helped you to understand Paul's letter a little more? So far. Yeah. And cut through some of the double talk. Uh, if you notice that when it is read out loud, it takes on a little bit of different meaning or understanding. When you read it by yourself in the quiet of your home, um, you get lost in the details. And you just don't grasp the meaning uh, like it is you do when it's read out loud. On the other hand, of course, if somebody walked in hearing you read that out loud and you're all alone in your house, they'd begin to wonder about you, you know. But nevertheless, reading out loud does have some advantages. Okay. All right. Any questions? Probably not. Probably not. No. Everybody who was Jewish at the time. Yeah. yeah. The Jewish people knew the Bible. Not not No. No. Uh huh. Unless they were converts of some time and have read. You see, this was written around. Somewhere around the year 50 to 55. 
know, roughly 10 to 12 years before Paul's death. Uh, and there was enough time for some Christians to get to Rome and convert a number of Jewish people who may have picked up on the Bible because in the early Christians continued to use the Jewish scriptures for some time and based a lot of Jesus' teachings on the Jewish scriptures. So, you know, they may have brought it over. Well, maybe other apostles, deacons, we don't know. We don't know who established the churches in Rome. No, we don't know. Yes, Norm? It's interesting. St. Paul is very contemporary. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. <laughs> You're right. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years, uh, Norm says. And, and that's right, because when I was reading this, I said, you know, that's just as uh, applicable to today's society uh, as it was at that time. Uh, look how many people are making uh, Hollywood people uh, little gods and sports people little gods and uh, very wealthy uh, young whippersnappers off of the internet uh, looked upon almost as little gods because they're worth billions now when a few years ago they probably didn't have a penny in their pocket. Um, but that is not something that we should <coughs> admire to that degree. That is not something that we should envy. Uh, and yet so many people do. Envy is something that can sneak up on you without really thinking about it. Uh, and it's still wrong. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, Frank? And that's a very, that is a very good way of putting it because once we accept Jesus Christ and all of the benefits that he holds out to us through his death and resurrection, we should feel the same way. That it puts us in a position where we don't want to sin. We have no longer the desire for any of those sinful things. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Susan? Uh, not mean that they won't it, but you have con to control. control. Yeah, the that's a good. Passion. Yeah, what? It's where? Not where are you on that? Thirty-seven. Uh, oh, down at the bottom. Okay. Yeah, I think everyone should turn to that. Page 37. Dick was getting ready to go home here. The last main paragraph, about two-thirds of the way down. The Jewish philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, champions the view that the law of Moses frees Gentiles from their desires so that they can achieve their goal of self-mastery over their passions. All right? It's not that they 
are no longer tempted, but it has, they, it gives them a form of control over their passions so that they have a psychological control. Okay. Um, so that they can achieve their goal of self-mastery over their passions. Uh, he says, uh, the law thinks that all those who adhere to the sacred constitution established by Moses ought to be free from all unreasonable passions and from all wickedness. <laughs> yeah. No. No way. All right. Because from what I've understood about Judaism is they will go a mile out of their way to work around some of these laws so that they do not uh, are not accused, you might say. Yeah. All right. That's that's right. Uh, my wife used to tell me that she lived in a Jewish neighborhood uh, in the Bronx, and uh, the lady across the street, who was a very nice, friendly lady, but very kosher Jewish, uh, would have uh, my wife or one of her sisters come over and light the fire. Uh, so that she could cook because it was against the Jewish law uh, to light fire on the Sabbath. Okay. Um, well, I don't think it says anything about that. I'm not sure. Huh? Oh, okay. Well, you see, but... Oh, all right. That's right. The servants can, but the wife can. All right. There's always a Well, that's it. And you see, of course, you know, as John just pointed out here, he's using the word adhering. Adhering to the law means that you follow the law in your mind and your heart as well is in practical approach. But if you get somebody else to circumvent the law for you, you know, Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. But you see, a lot of those laws, particularly the dietary laws, were intended for common sense health purposes. They were never intended originally to be uh, worship, forms of worship. But over a period of time, it was looked upon as something that Moses said, even though Moses probably didn't. Uh, and whatever Moses said then was put in concrete as a law. And the law was then sacred. So it was never intended. Now, one of the things that Moses did say was that eating the, I mean, or, or consuming, let's put it that way, consuming the blood of sacrificed animals was forbidden. And that again was actually a dietary law, but it had other kinds of worship implications as well. 
But over a period of time, they forgot the implications to worship, and it became a sacred law because if you consume the blood of sacrificed animals, you would become like the animal. And because, you know, food that is taken into the body becomes part of the body over a period of time, you see. And sometimes too much of the body. (laughs) But nevertheless, uh, the whole idea became superstitious. But when Christ comes along, he takes that superstition and he turns it around and says he wants you to consume his body and drink his blood. And if you don't, you don't have eternal or spiritual life within you. Because he wants you to become as much like him as possible. So he's using the same superstition in a positive way that they were looking upon it in a negative way under the Jewish law. And there are a number of situations where Christianity has taken a negative thing and turned it into a positive thing. For example, the uh, worship of things on Halloween, you know, the night before the Feast of All Saints. That was, the Feast of All Saints was established on the 1st of November to sort of counteract, although I don't think it ever did, because Halloween seems to be bigger today than it ever was, uh, but it was supposed to counteract uh, the evil that was actually uh, the origin of Halloween. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for being with us tonight. We hope and pray that you will continue to guide us and inspire us to a deeper and better understanding of Paul's letters to the Romans and all of his letters so that as we develop our relationship with you through the study of these letters, we will be made free and justified and righteous and hopefully eventually sanctified through the efforts of your Holy Spirit guiding and directing us towards you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things.